Welcome to Sound and Vision, conversations with contemporary artists and musicians about the creative process. Here's the host of Sound and Vision, Brian Alfred. Richard Phillips was born in 1962 in Marblehead, Massachusetts. He received his BFA in 1984 from Massachusetts College of Art in Boston and his MFA in 1986 from Yale University. His recent solo museum exhibitions include Kunsthal Zurich in Switzerland, Kunstverein Hamburg in Germany, paintings and drawings at Le Consortium in Dijon, Lindsay Lohan at the Institute of Modern Art in Brisbane, and Negation of the Universe at the Dallas Contemporary in Texas. His work in public collections include the Museum of Modern Art in New York, the Whitney Museum of American Art, the Albright Knox Gallery in Buffalo, the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art, the Denver Art Museum, the Modern Art Museum of Fort Worth in Texas, the Museum of Contemporary Art in North Miami, and the Tate Modern in London. His films, Lindsay Lohan and Sasha Gray, premiered at the 54th Venice Biennale in 2011 and at the Institute of Modern Art in Brisbane in 2012. First Point premiered at Art Unlimited at Art Basel in Switzerland in June 2012. I met up with Richard at his Red Hook studio in Brooklyn and we spoke about his early days in the village making sculptural paintings, surfing, racing, the impact of music, Blinky and Motherwell, and a whole lot more. Here's our conversation. shows that were damaging to my ears. I credit like my bloody Valentine for blowing my ears out Seriously? permanently. Yeah. That's my I tell that story all the time that that was the first concert where I was like completely overwhelmed and I had to leave the room. It was so loud. Like I felt a little not nauseous, but I was getting a little like this is overwhelming. Yeah, it was intense. The when oh wait that's the sign. Sure. Do you have enough slack? Oh, wow, this is great. You sound like uh, no bad. Howard, Howard Stern. You know? <laughs> well, yeah. yeah. Well, <laughs> can I we like put um, like effects on it so I can ha- sound like Howard Stern, okay. like really deep voice? Yeah, so. definitely. I Seriously? Could, yeah. No, I don't want to do it, but that's really fun. <laughs> no, but um, yeah, I saw their last show from their first iteration, yeah. you know, and um, I forget where it was in town, but, it, you know, and I did that 27-minute uh, noise thing yeah. at the end, and it just, it just, I stayed for the whole thing, and it just blew my ears out. And, it's visceral. Uh, no earplugs? Uh, no earplugs, oh and uh, so I have tinnitus, <laughs> thanks to that, and then um, when um, Throbbing Gristle reformed mm-hmm. um, and did that uh, Derek Jarman uh, thing over mm-hmm. at the Masonic Temple, um, and then played a, a set after that, uh, it was panic-inducing, like yeah. how, like, because I know that they know how to do that, the frequencies that cause problems, right. you know, like yeah. the brown sound. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> things that get inside you and yeah. do damage. <laughs> yeah, and um, they did that for sure. It was, it was stressful, but, um, you know, I've, you know, music for me has been like a really large part of what, you know, my yeah. experience. Yeah, you know, definitely. That's so. why I was excited mm-hmm. to talk, because sure. I knew you had a big music influence. Whenever uh, that the band that I was talking about that I used mm-hmm. to be in, we played a few shows on the East Coast with uh, Arabon Radar. Yeah, I've heard, I have you heard of them? Yeah, it's kind of out. Yeah, but in recording it sounds kind of out, but live mm. it was totally, mm. you know, out. And they were making those frequencies and combining ones that were just so jarring, like yeah. these really high pitched and then low, low end stuff that was pretty amazing. 
I mean, you kind of wanted to watch it, but it pushed you back at the same time. Yeah. No, I mean, the wonders of earplugs, I only discovered too late. Yeah. <laughs> you yeah. know, um, I think uh, it a, little had, a little bit it had to do with racing that when I was in these, uh, like, um, like factory-built car, uh, race cars, they were so loud that if you didn't... Oh, you them, have to. You have to, because it's um, extremely, extremely loud, yeah. Yeah, it's funny, because being at shows, mm -hmm. I always had this thing where, like, if I put earplugs in, I'm not really hearing the music. Mm -hmm. It sounds like I'm, you know, I have a sock over my ear or something. Well, if you get, I mean, for um, racing, I had these uh, custom ones. Like I had cast the inside of, you know, and you get these earplugs that, you know, you put your radio in so that you have yeah. pit uh, uh, car radio. And um, those were the best, you know, right. you can, like, because it just fits exactly into your ear and it's yeah. like perfect. Um, Do they filter out more evenly than normal earplugs? You know how normal earplugs will take the high end out? Mm -hmm. And it'll just feel really low end, but don't they make ear earplugs that are kind of more I've, spectrum? Like you yeah, hear better. I mean, I don't know that those things. I think those things are more just like protection and um, you know being able to hear yeah. um, the radio. Um, so I don't know how. I mean, they were just perfectly sealed so that they would really protect your ear because right. you know over a period of time that would be really bad. <laughs> yeah. So. Well, the, one of the most surprising things when I first my first NASCAR race. Oh, was, wow, um, yeah. I thought it was going to be this kind of, you know, southerner, you know, like kind of yeehaw party, you know, people drinking and wild. And it can be. I don't know where you went. Which track did you go to? <laughs> well, I went to the Poconos. Oh, yeah. Well, that's different than going to, say, Texas, Motor Speedway. Yeah. yeah. Um, but, the, but the big thing was when the race is going, you can't, no one can hear anything. It is incredibly loud. Really I loud. mean, it's um, louder. I mean, the funny thing is, is that Formula One, has this problem where it's not loud enough anymore because right. they went to the uh, turbos. Um, but NASCAR is um, is unbelievably loud. It, like at Texas Motor Speedway, if you are on the front straight as they come around the final corner of the, um, I think it's a tri-oval, however those things are, mm -hmm. and when they're all on, like all 40-some-odd cars are on power, and it's just this, like, the, well, it's just, I mean, you feel it all the way through your body. It's right. so insane. Yeah. And the smell of the rubber. It's a real visceral experience. Yeah. I, I had this experience um, during the, um, I think it was the Dallas Art Fair. Mm -hmm. And um, a uh, PR guy um, and, um, of, of, of uh, known reputation, Adam Abdallah, said, hey, man, do you want to meet uh, Jimmy Johnson? And I was like, I mean, seven-time Right. Uh, cup champion uh, for sure and so he and his wife Chandra I mean Chandra, speaking of North Carolina she has a gallery in North Carolina so oh, she right. had this pop-up um, uh, in the Jewel Hotel and sure enough I met Jimmy and, uh, and and they were absolutely charming and very into art and the whole thing and Jimmy uh, invited me to come to the racetrack uh, the following day because he was racing in the you know Texas 500 yeah and um, and so I got there, and suddenly I was like escorted back to the where the trailers are, mm -hmm. and then I'm in his trailer like right before the race with uh, Chandra and the whole thing. And um, then I'm at the pit wall, and I'm like the last person shaking his hand before he gets into the car to go out for the warm up laps <laughs> and stuff like that. I was like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. And uh, you know, I sat in the pit box for the race, and um, he won the race. And so, well, that's good. so then it was like going into victory lane and the whole thing. And, uh, you know, in, in Texas, they, 
do victory lane uh, like in a more extreme way than any other circuit where they like there's flames and it's like you know it's insane. I'm surprised I wasn't barbecued, um, <laughs> but it, I mean NASCAR, you know, it was just such a completely over the top experience. And I think, you know, I mean he he's won a lot in Texas, but it's like. I think that Texas does it a bit different. They do it really, really big. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, Pocono as the track, that was my first track that I ever drove on personally. Oh, really? Um, yeah, as you know, and going into that first uh, bowl, mm -hmm. uh, the high banking, it definitely, uh, you know, is a gut check for sure. Yeah, I can't imagine. <laughs> yeah, it's like, the, speed. the speed was intense. And um, the, main, the main thing is, is that you come in and then you drop down to the base of the ball and then um, you know you're flat on it and then yeah. you're tracking out right to the wall and my instructor at the time was like don't look at the wall and look at where you're gonna go <laughs> right. don't look at the wall because if you look at the wall you'll hit you're gonna yeah. go to the wall you know just follow your hands and it was just so, and the thing is is you with a with a Porsche you cannot lift like you, if you lift, the car is going to come around. Yeah. So you have to stay committed. And that was a hard thing. You know, like your mind is like telling you, lift, 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 you're going to hit the wall. Right. And then it's like, you've got to go against that and, and push harder to get the back end to grip up so you don't spin. So, How fast were you going? Um, you know, the top speed at that track was the top speed for my car, which was like 155, 160, which is not that, I mean, compared to like um, a NASCAR or whatever. Yeah, but you're 200. not in a stock car. Yeah, yeah. So, but that for that little car, it was more than enough for sure. Yeah. It was a, um, a 92 turbo that had a little bit of an, a race engine in it. So, um, but I've since kind of dialed back the horsepower <laughs> and gone for handling. <laughs> when you go up that pitch, is it really, does it feel almost like you're going uphill? Well, I mean, the whole thing is, is that when you when you come into the banking, um, you you don't you come in kind of mid to high up, and then you literally you you drop down mm -hmm. to the base of it so that you can get the full measure of the track out to the wall there, and then the, you know as you're as you're tracking out to the wall and you're climbing up the banking that way, there's the lateral forces are pretty great, and so. And then, you know, if you do glance at the wall, you see all this, the, the paint scraping right, and right. all that right there. <laughs> like, oh man, you don't want to hit it, you know? Yeah, imagine doing that in like a 10 car heat. Yeah, I, towards the end of my racing experience, I raced in Spec Miata, I kind of went in reverse. Like uh -huh. I started out in these high power cars and went to the lowest power car. But the other side to that is that the racing was way more intense and it was incredibly close with huge fields. And I have a lot of respect for the Specking out of racers, yeah. I mean they, because they're racing um, in giant packs and all um, the bump drafting, you know, like right on each other's bumper, mm -hmm. is like making these trains that push because they're faster than one car, you know, because right. you get the aerodynamic yeah. benefit of having multiple cars together. So you get like three, four car trains uh, going at a, a high rate of speed, and uh, you know, go and then when they come into the braking zone to go to the corners, they all split apart to try to pass one another under right. braking. So, yeah, it's you know that, and then you just see these unbelievable crashes, you know. Right. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. Try to stay out of them. Right. <laughs> but I was thinking that those that old rule of like if you're going 60 miles per hour, you mm -hmm. should be six car lengths behind the car in front of you for a safe braking distance yeah, know, well, in, with on the, the street. Yeah, on the street. <laughs> and with they're, the, neck, they're inches away so they can get the draft. But I can't Well, know. I mean, in the old, uh, in NASCAR, I guess they changed it a few years ago, but they did, they were bump drafting too, but then mm -hmm. they wanted to stop that because it was always causing these massive accidents, right. you know. Um, and now, like that, you know, they do a lot of bumping, you know, like 
they'll get, like if you can get on the inside of a car, you basically just put your wheel on the side of their car and like climb up the car and pass them. <laughs> you know, it's, you know, and they're doing that over 200 miles an hour, so that's like a whole other yeah. thing. And uh, I remember Jimmy saying that his um, background in, in dirt track racing um, in California um, was a real big part of his com- being comfortable with a car being out of shape, you know, being sideways yeah. and really um, sliding the car and like really being able to have, you know, max, like I think his uh, real talent is having incredible uh, car control, you know, and, and not being phased one one bit with the yeah. speed uh, and getting the car sideways at a high rate of speed. So Yeah, it's really talent, like driving yeah, talent. Oh man. The people yeah. think it's just thrill seekers, crazy people in cars who want to go fast, mm-hmm. but there's a real art. Oh, it's, to it. it's uh, and then the higher up the uh, categories you go, the more complex and more, you know, because they're basically engineers too. They have to understand like, what they need to be able to, you know, feedback to the engineer um, is, is something extraordinary. And, and in when you get into it, like the race teams, they call drivers spacers, mm-hmm. essentially, because they're the space between the seat and the wheel, and they can be replaced. Yeah. You know, it's like they're, they're, the engineers are only thinking about how to optimize the, the, the package so that the car can be exploited to the maximum degree. So they expect whoever gets into the car to be able to go to that outer limit. And the thing that they want then is is the feedback, is to get very detailed uh, feedback about what's happening in the car, the drivability of the car at those uh, extreme limits, so that they can go further. And then, yeah. and that's where they uh, find that those extra hundredths of a second that uh, allow them to win. Do you think they? Do you think they refer to Lewis Hamilton as a spacer, or is he just Lewis Hamilton? He's Lewis Hamilton. Yeah, <laughs> yeah he's good enough. I, when you get. No, I mean, champions uh, like that, or even in GT racing or, or, in, or um, prototype racing, um, you know, when you get to that degree, then there's something special there. And I yeah. think that um, the world uh, can agree. <laughs> that, right. um, uh, that, and, and what you're getting there is someone who can drive beyond uh, the, the design limits of the car. Um, yeah. And they take the car into the, in the unknown. And that's, you know... Ideally, that's where racing exists. It exists um, in that area that's not known um, yeah. and not felt other, other than them. And um, when you have somebody like Max Verstappen or, um, or Sebastian Vettel or you know, Daniel Ricciardo, it's like they're out there in some other rarefied space. You know, and plus they're having to do all these controls and you know, optimizing every like. I, I read recently where Lewis Hamilton um, is like thinking about like. Um, several corners ahead um, in, a, in, a, in a quadraphonic way. I mean, in the sense that I, he needs to prepare the left-hand front tire to maximize grip for, like, turn three when he might be in turn one. So he's already thinking ahead of what types of settings and what types of ways, of, you know, energy recovery and how to get the tire into the right temperature to, for that corner to exploit you know, a maneuver. So it's it gets down to like incredibly detailed stuff. It's like savant status. Yes, <laughs> but it's happening at really high rates of speed. Yeah. So the, their reflexes and intuition and all that um, are, are pretty extreme. Yeah. Right. When you were, uh, bringing it back to you, when you were growing up, were you mm. a thrill seeker? Um, yeah, I mean, I guess so. Um, I did a lot of... Um, Sailboat racing. Uh, when I was young, I also played sports like hockey. I was a goalie, you know, and played that all the way up um, into up till the college level, and played it, you know, year round, and was, you know, 
This is in Massachusetts. Yeah, right? Massachusetts School Board Hockey. I went to the state championship and all that, and, and uh, was like an all-star in the high school school board hockey thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but in sailing, you know, we had like a group of us. You know, we raced um, all kinds of boats, and you know, the heavier the weather, like the like the storms, we um, where people would not want to go out. A group of us would always meet, and we didn't even have to call each other. We'd just meet at the at the boat ramp and um, put the boats in, and go out testing in really heavy conditions with high seas and strong wind and and high speed, um, you know, uh, you know, high performance um, sailboats. So, yeah, I would say that I. You kind of went out saw, when other people were coming in, basically. Uh, or just were staying by the fireplace yeah. and not, uh, you know. And I raced year-round, too, so I raced um, in the winter, too, when it was uh, super cold. And we didn't have wetsuits back then, to like or the dry suits, to make it, you know, okay. So if you capsized in uh, that type of water, you need to be rescued, yeah. right? Like it's going to be chilly. Within, a, in like, 30 seconds or a minute, or else you're going to get hypothermia. So. Jeez. It's, so, like the, it's like surfers who go out in yeah. huge like storms just to catch those big waves. Yeah, I mean, I surf uh, now, and I have been since 2000. And so, yeah, I mean, you know, we surf year-round in the winter. And, um, you, know, uh, that, you know, it gets good here on the East Coast in the wintertime. Yeah, so, yeah out in North, Long Island. Right? Yeah, Long Island and North Jersey and all like that. So yeah. it gets really good. Mm-hmm. That's cool. So when you... Uh, when you were a kid growing up in Massachusetts, were you also creative in drawing, and was art a big thing back then, or was it yeah, something well, you started I mean, doing was, in school? No, I mean, it was something that I did all along, mm-hmm. um, you know. Um, were it, your parents creative? Not, no, my grandparents were. Yeah. I mean, they were all Sunday painters. <laughs> um, you know, my grandfather on my mother's side um, was a Sunday painter. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, grew up, he was an engineer, went to MIT, and then, uh, you know, worked for AMF um, down in South America, and when he retired, uh, he just, like, committed to drawing and painting, and so um, when my parents split up um, early on, he moved up to Massachusetts to, you know, support my mom, and um, he would come and look at my drawings on a weekly basis and mm-hmm. say, okay, so what have you drawn? And, and he taught me, like, the tonal scale and, like, pencil marks, how to do that, and, you know, basically taught me how to draw at a, a young age. And so, for me, drawing was um, a way of not only expressing myself in whatever funky way <laughs> I wanted to do that, yeah. but, um, but also um, it was just a way of entertaining others, too, because I had a knack for it. I mean, I wouldn't say that I was that good at it, but I, was able, I did it enough so that it you know, I could entertain people at, like, um, study hall in school, right. and, and they would ask me to draw something crazy, and I would draw it, or I would, you know, be off, like, doing some other kind of drawing. Yeah. So it was mainly just pencil drawing on sketchbooks. And was it imagination or drawing from life, or did you do the... Uh, drawing from imagination yeah. pretty much only, and then by the time, I guess, I was in junior high school, I had a teacher there that, you know, started to get organized in terms of how to teach. Like, I was using acrylic paint, and, mm-hmm. yeah, and, and then high school, it was more of that, um, and I had a little bit of an art history class. Uh, it's funny, because I was up over the weekend at the Edvard Munch show, and mm-hmm. Munch, uh, when I was in high school, was, like, my favorite yeah, artist. It was, it was big. And, um, yeah, I mean, for high school students, it makes perfect sense. And it still makes sense. Right. You know, when I right. saw this show, uh, it blew me away. I was like, "It holds well, up." 
It does, and you know, it's it's uh, you know, it's a generous show, um, mm-hmm. and uh, there are so many. You know, actually, it's just you know the guy just stood up and painted those things. I mean, in, and it's great when you go through Europe, um, you get to see the ones that are not like super famous, but yet are no less radical. And and I think that that's something that I um, gravitated to right away when I was and uh, and in, in high school. But I was like making you know tape hard edged you know painting <laughs> you know and in my classes thinking that was the coolest thing. Uh, and uh, I didn't make any oil paintings until I was a freshman um, in, um, in college at Boston University mm-hmm. and uh, at, at the School of Fine Art, which was a kind of Beaux-Arts styled, um, you know, figurative painting yeah. school. Mm-hmm. And did you go in basically saying, I'm going to be an art major, this is what I'm going to do? Or was I it did. just something uh, you were interested in? You know, my, in my family, the, the men in my family on both sides of the family, uh, but more specific to my father's side of the family, have all been engineers um, and um, back through generations. And they all been um, in uh, the service and military service mm-hmm. and an officer uh, training and you know through I mean just going all the way back as far as so I was really you know the engineering thing was something that was discussed and so I thought oh yeah well I was gonna go to you know the Naval Academy or something like that or get into um, you know naval architecture or however but actually what I really wanted to do was go to art school and um, when push came to shove, my mom really backed it. She was like, yeah, well, you know, you go to art school. <laughs> and, uh, cool. and I couldn't believe it because it's essentially like all my grandparents and both sides of the family all Sunday painted. And I just didn't want to wait until I was like 75 years old to start right. making art. I thought, well, why not do it right away? And I hadn't really understood what art school was until, you know, I had applied to other schools and I hadn't got in. And I like found an application to uh, Boston University in a friend's closet, um, and um, I just applied with my drawings, and um, they um, accepted me, and that's where it all began. Really. Isn't it crazy pre-internet how you find schools? It was like this word of mouth or <coughs> yeah. brochures. You could just stumble across the brochure for something, and yeah, like, and oh, I just, that's where I'll go. I literally just gathered my drawings that I made in, you know, over the summer, mm-hmm. and. Um, um, brought them into the school um, in a portfolio and and got somehow late admission, you know, and then just moved into Boston from, you know, Marblehead, Massachusetts. And, uh, you know, I had an, uh, a scholarship from my high school, like I had won the, the art scholarship of the mm-hmm. school or something like that. And so, um, which, which was a great scholarship in the sense that it gave me money for supplies. So I always had money for paint like I never had to worry about it. You know, just it was like a supplies grant, so I could go to Utrecht and like get as much paint and as much canvas as whatever as I wanted, and um, just uh, paint. You know, so but I didn't really at that point I didn't know what that was because I hadn't ever oil painted. You know, right. and um, you know I uh, started in with my drawing class with like this uh, great artist uh, John Wilson, um, and you know just really started you know learning to draw essentially um, from scratch you know and uh, from the model and that like freaked me out obviously when I first got that I was like drawing from the model so it was like a horror show from day one (laughs) and it was drawing um, and uh, we didn't paint from the model until I think the second half of my freshman year Um, but so it was like a lot of still life painting and um, you know the whole thing so it was really 
but it was done where you had to learn um, drawing from life, painting from life, sculpting from life, uh, printmaking, um, and everything. And then you need to know um, technique. Um, you had a painting um, techniques and materials class, and also anatomy class, and so um, which was like a two-year thing. And uh, you know, so you really had to demonstrate that not only could you take a written test for anatomy, but that you could um, do a drawn test as well, like draw whatever it is that they tell you. Can you imagine these days? I mean, maybe it happens <coughs> here or there, but probably I think not. that there's. I mean, uh, maybe BU is still that way, but uh, I, you know, and maybe there's. Uh, I know that like the New York Academy. I right. think you could probably assemble classes to approximate that. Mm -hmm. But this was really something that was done in right. this way, and, and it was unshakable. <laughs> you know, right. uh, I had this techniques teacher, Reed Kay, who really, you know, you had to demonstrate all the different methods, you know, from glazing to, um, you know, uh, fresco painting to, um, you know, I don't know. I mean, it was, uh, you know, everything. You had to be able to do everything. And, um, and exactly, or else you'd fail. <laughs> you know, right, and, right. Uh, and they really held it to a standard. And I rebelled against it so much at the time, but I stuck with it. You know, I just wanted to make like 1950s style abstract painting. Because right. literally when I was growing up, there were only two books in my house, art books. My parents were not interested in art. And uh, there was no like libraries of art books and there was no trips to the museum to, mm -hmm. you know, stand in front of the paintings while I wanted to leave. You know, it was like zero, right? It was just like, <laughs> if, I, if it wasn't for my one high school art teacher, I wouldn't know anything about it. And, but the two books I had were these, it was oddball, like de Kooning and Pollock catalogs from mm. MoMA, like these little um, uh, soft cover um, exhibition, ca exhibition catalogs, catalogs yeah. from MoMA, which were a part of a series of like modern masters. And they're they're pretty small, but they had, and I was like pretty fixated on de Kooning's, um, early de Kooning paintings, like the black enamel ones. Yeah. And um, just like, I mean, this kind of fig figures into my painting later, but like, I, I ended up making paintings of those paintings, you know, which yeah. of course is completely and totally antithetical to every aspect of what he was trying to do. Right. But I literally was like, I had the enamel and I had it and I, and I had this basically made copies. I mean, I wasn't trying to be like Mike Bidlow or whatever, but it was like, I was making copies of these like black and white paintings in my dorm room whilst I was like drawing and painting from life in the, in the classrooms at, at Boston University. So you're letting out the expression at home? Yeah, but like like multiples of decades right. in, the, in the past, yeah. do you know what I mean? It was like, I guess it would be the equivalent of, um, yeah, I mean, it would be the equivalent right now of like people doing um, 80s stuff in, right. um, in school. You yeah, know, uh, yeah. which was when I was in school. Right. <laughs> so it was really so. I guess it's not so bad. You know, I, it was kind of. A, I was thinking of the equivalent of being like you had one Led Zeppelin CD and one Beatles CD, mm. and like you went off and just started making Beatles songs or Led Zeppelin songs. You know, mm -hmm. it's, it's the counter to whatever classical music that was being taught at school, and it it feels like kind of the same, you know, sort of framework as far as like the traditional approach that you were getting, but you wanted to connect with something that seemed a little more yeah. exotic in a way or primal or something. I know, because like, I mean, now you could, I, I just discovered this the other day. Um, someone on Facebook posted a, um, 
a performance by Led Zeppelin from 1968 mm -hmm. of Dazed and Confused um, at this little, you know, at this show in London, I don't know where it was, but it was like such a perfect um, performance, like in, you know, Robert Plant was looking great and, you know, mm -hmm. and it was, and it sounded fantastic and they weren't like doing cabaret versions of the songs, right. like, like which they did in the 70s, right. like it was really like they were the like, robber. yeah, they just yeah. were pushing it out in normal, in a, in a good way. And so, oh my God, I was like, I mean, the advent of being able to see anything on YouTube is, it's amazing. is, is so awesome. I, if I could have done that, I don't know. I, I don't know. <laughs> I've been such overloaded information. Yeah. Know. Otherwise you'd think, you know, it's all, the song remains the same. But when you hear that early Zeppelin, when yeah. it's real tied to blues mm -hmm. and it's raw and oh, it's, man. it's get, not polished yeah. at all. Not that they were ever polished, but it became more yeah. organized or something. I mean, the gong came in at some point. You know? Right. This but this was, was before that. Yeah. And you see a rather fit John Bonham yeah. um, hitting so hard and in, yeah. in, in such a completely unhinged, crazy way that right. it is uh, doing that. Um, it, was, it gave me chills. I was, uh, you know... And listening to like on a cassette player like Led Zeppelin, you know, I actually I never saw them live. You know, it wasn't really my um, thing. You know, um, but uh, yeah, that would have been something, I guess. I could have seen them in the seventies. Um, you know, uh, but didn't quite yeah. make it. <laughs> yeah, I never got to see. I mean, before my time, I guess. But I, I grew up going to see the you know like rock shows like yeah. Bon Jovi and Cinderella and Guns N' Roses and all that stuff. Which yeah, was way more of a production. Definitely, that, that's a good thing. I mean, for me, I moved into Boston um, in 1980. So, you know, you had the, um, the vestiges of the punk scene, um, but then you had the, um, you know, post-punk um, and, like, uh, the burgeoning kind of goth, the death rock, um, you know, industrial stuff. I mean, like Sleep Chamber, I don't yeah, know. Yeah. Uh, I remember a Christian Death show, really important, like when they were touring Only mm -hmm. Theater of Pain. And um, then you had like uh, Who's Could Do and all this other uh, stuff, you know, really at the beginning. So in Boston was such a, you know, a great, um, you know, stop because it was an important stop for bands, uh, for touring bands. And it was often the first stop. Like I saw um, Jesus and Mary Chain's first U.S. Uh, show. Um, after reading about them and collecting their EPs, mm -hmm. um, uh, and you know, it was one of the. It still remains to me like one of the most incredible experiences um, because, you know, you know, you leave your art studio or art classroom or whatever it is that you're working on, and you go down to the show. You know, and yeah. uh, I think this was at the Channel in Boston, mm -hmm. and um, I think that. Uh, you know, the Young Snakes, which became Till Tuesday, which became Amy Man, like they opened up for Jesus and Mary Jane. And they opened up, I don't know, they played, and they went on at like 10 or something like that. And, uh, you know, clubs in Boston close at, at 2. So they did their set and then they got off. And, um, and, then, and, and then just like people are waiting and waiting for you know, another hour passes. Like, and at this point, the place is about to riot, you right. know, because it's now 10 to 2 and still no Jesus and Mary Chain. And at 5 to 2, they come on and they played one song. And basically, they came on in all, you know, the all black and mm -hmm. the whole thing and with the, you know, the satin uh, elbow length right. uh, gloves. The gloves. Yeah, and um, the guitars were on the stage, flat, lying flat on the stage. And when they picked up the guitars, um, the 
amount of feedback that came out through the speakers um, was uh, beyond deafening. Right. They picked up the guitars, they turned um, their backs to the crowd and walked up to the amplifiers, and then it just even it was just rain down of um, feedback, um, and then they and then the drum just started in that kind of surf, kind of uh, you know rhythm. Yeah. And uh, I think they played Never Understand, and then it was um, it was over. Yeah, <laughs> and then the place riot. I was gonna say, were people pissed off? No, it just rioted, oh, like really? in the club, out in the parking lot, under the street, and then it was just like out of mayhem. And, it was and it's like not, it's funny, it's because it's not, it's post-punk, it's not punk, but it's a very punk feel, you know what I mean, like around them. Right, but they weren't, um, you know, it wasn't like a punk show, yeah. you know what I mean, uh, it wasn't like uh, in, engaged with the audience. I mean, yeah. you think of PIL, and they play with like a chain link fence at the front of the stage, and, right. like, they're, and like they're in the back of the stage, and you know... Um, but, you know, it, you know or, or I remember when I saw Christian Death, I literally, I was walking through Kemar Square and um, I was walking past the rat and I was like, well, what's playing there tonight? Mm-hmm. And I, I literally, I, I, I walked in um, with some friends and, and like Roz Williams is there like with his hair and like the eye makeup and wearing a dress and and he's like playing like Romeo's Distress and I'm like wow this is the coolest music I've ever heard in my life yeah did it feel like Avon like you were just like yeah I mean well you know this was they were literally touring that that album yeah so uh, and I had never heard anything like that and it was absolutely amazing that's a pretty cool way to be introduced to that stuff yeah it was it was really really amazing I um you know and uh you you know kind of followed it from there you know you know when I was my studio like music came together in different ways for me. Like you could either walk in to see a show, or you heard about it, and you know I, I got to become friends with musicians. So then it was, it moved into seeing shows and lofts, you know, where like artists uh, mm-hmm. open their lofts for bands to play, and the best shows were really there. Um, the in the clubs, you know, it would be kind of like, oh, do we really need to go to a club to see this? Because right. the bands would come into town and they would play loft shows, uh, which would be more important than playing in the in the commercial shows, because yeah. um, then you'd have your peers, and or they would have their peers and all that. Um, but yeah, I know it was um, it it was it was a really great period of time um, for uh, for music, and it made you know, like I remember being in a, in a classroom and a, a friend handing me this black tape, and it was uh, you know throbbing gristle, and it was like I had never heard of them before, and I put it into the you know tape player. And uh, you know, I was like hamburger lady and all this stuff coming out. I was like, holy shit! <laughs> and it just made making art seem so foolish and stupid, and not really interesting. And and um, you know, eventually, I saw the flip side of that later when I transferred out of Boston University, went to Mass College of Art, mm-hmm. and they had this program called the Studio for Interrelated Media, or, or SIM. And they had uh, Psychic TV as visiting artists. And the performance that they did there was legendary. Um, I had the occasion to talk to uh, Genesis about it later. <laughs> and, oh, really? I mean, because it was a super extreme performance, yeah, yeah. you know, with you know blood and feces and you know uh, really tough yeah. uh, stuff. And I, you know, I had no um, inter- like I had no idea what was going to happen. And then the performance art stuff that was happening. You know, you have to figure this is 1983, and so the performance stuff that was happening at the school was pretty far out there, you know. I mean, it was, uh, and as a painter, 
I just felt like hopelessly conservative, but in some ways I felt like, well, you know, all the more reason to paint, you know, yeah, like, yeah. Uh, you know, and, and I, I kind of really went for it, you know, as much as I can. Like, I would say my biggest influence um, uh, was uh, like Helmut Middendorf, you know, mm-hmm. um, and who I had, uh, who I met last year for the first time, and I had the chance to, like, we had lunch, and I had the chance to tell him how. I mean, really, how much he inspired me to like go for it, you know. And, and what did he and, say? Ah, oh, he was he, he loved he, he yeah, loved yeah. hearing that, you know. Um, you know, because I had this one catalog of uh, that included his work, um, and then I tried to find other. It was not, as you know, it was not easy to find yeah. stuff um, at that time unless you were went to galleries, and I was, you know, in Boston, and the, the galleries were not going to be doing that. So um, yeah, it was. Uh, so I was making these giant paintings. Um, Mass College of Art, you know, which I transferred to after the summer at Norfolk, at Yale Norfolk, mm-hmm. um, uh, had moved into this new girls' school um, place where they now have their school. And so, but they hadn't quite figured out what to do with the huge amounts of space that they had. So I was uh, took hold of that opportunity and, and took a gymnasium as my studio, and uh, and it was like unbelievable. So you're making some big work. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah I'd, Why not? No, I, mean, right? I was just, just going wild, yeah. you know. And um, so when I, um, you know, and and why not? You know, I had the materials grant that was like in perpetuity, you know. Yeah. And I just uh, would buy paint and and go wild with it. And I was making like expressionist, um, kind of. Uh, at that point, it was like I was using like, you know, different materials into the in the painting. I would say the closest thing that the paintings were, after I had all this figurative uh, work done at um, Boston University, were like, it was like Robert Motherwell, you know, mm-hmm. like really uncool, like overly self-conscious, but large and expressionist. Because I didn't want to like make a neo-expressionist painting because it was everywhere, yeah. you know. Um, yeah. But what I did want to do was make, like I wanted to be in the paint. So, right. um, and I had this great teacher there, Rob Moore, who um, was this, um, really fantastic colorist and abstract geometric painter whose work I, I admire to this day. Um, he, uh, you know, taught us color theory and all that, but he was also just like a huge advocate for like going for it in painting. So it was, uh, it was a lot of fun. Yeah, he wanted you to be ambitious. Yeah. <laughs> Nothing breeds ambition like yeah. a, a materials grant in the gymnasium. Yeah, I mean, the funny thing was is that, I mean, Rob, um, you know, he made these very small, super tight um, abstract paintings. Um, beautiful, though. Um, and yet his students were just going off the wall with this crazy kind of neo-X um, abstraction, yeah. which was, I thought was so cool. I came to Yale, for, when I applied to Yale, um, I didn't want to roll my paintings, and I wanted them to be stretched because mm-hmm. I had them on these big, thick stretchers, like kind of Stella style, but even thicker. Yeah. But yet, I mean, they were—they looked like these Dayglo, um, uh, you know, Robert Motherwell paintings. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was like, why not? And uh, and I, ins- but I didn't want to unstretch them, so I I got hired this truck, like I and I drove this truck down with these, I mean, really, really big paintings, that. Um, Barely fit into the um, the A and A building. I was going to say, other, how did you get it in there? I had to have uh, other students who were also applying to Yale help me <laughs> get my paintings into the truck. I was such an asshole. <laughs> oh yeah, oh, they had that loading dock around yes, the side. Yeah, so that's where we put oh, we yeah. brought them in, and they barely fit into the uh, 
the, the viewing room. And then when I got into the reviewing the viewing room, there were all my faculty, all the faculty that I had had from the summer right. program. Oh, so yeah. it was like, That's hey, what's up, guys? Right. And, you know, and it was just, yeah, it was it was wrong. <laughs> <laughs> but you got in. I did, yeah, and um, I didn't apply anywhere else. Mm-hmm. You know, that's I only wanted to go there, and um, and did Norfolk really guide that, or was it? Just well, it guided my rap. my zeal for yeah. <laughs> wanting yeah. to do that and following a path um, that I that I had want, wanted to, to go. I know um, an upperclassman of mine at both BU and eventually Yale, uh, Carl Ostendorp, um, you know, kind of had. You know, told me what the, the you know how it was going to go, and yeah. how to prepare for it. So that was super helpful. Yeah, when when you were at Norfolk, it was still music and art, right? It was. Yeah, yeah there was a music program there. You know, and I think that the visiting artists were like the Tokyo String Quartet. You wow. know, so it was pretty amazing. They had that amazing. I, well, I don't know when you were there. If, mm-hmm. if it was the same building, but they had this kind of. Um, music building where it was like these really steep seats and then a stage at the bottom where you could watch people play but mm-hmm. I don't know if they used it that all the time been. or if that was there but it was yeah. a pretty amazing space but our band ended up recording our first record there improv wow. too because when we went we went to play mm-hmm. like a reception a group show when the students first get there they have a group show yes and then the drummer in the band was teaching there in oh, between wow. first and second wow. year of grad school okay. so we played an opening and then these two uh, German uh, composers mm-hmm. and recorders saw us, and they mm-hmm. were like, hey, do you guys want to record for fun? Mm-hmm. So we went up a couple weeks later, and these guys were super pro at it. And we, you know, they just wow. recorded us, we just played a live record, and that ended up being our first record. That's incredible. But it was a really nice space. Yeah. And it was cool that they had, uh, you know, I didn't go there, I just visited. Mm-hmm. But, um, and I had a friend in undergraduate school, an artist named Gerald Davis, who was mm-hmm. my roommate, who went there when he was an undergrad, and it had a huge effect on him too, I think. But um, just being there and visiting, it was a really cool experience of like getting mm-hmm. to know the music people, and then you had art at the same time. It seemed like a really good program. Yeah, we had such a good group uh, there. Um, you know, Rebecca Miller, um, filmmaker, mm-hmm. um, Jenny Livingston, who you know, the Paris is burning filmmaker. She actually started filming uh, the year. Um, I think it was in her senior year at, at Yale, mm-hmm. um, and uh, but already, I mean, these students like they were just so. I mean, at that age, they were already really great artists, yeah. <laughs> really interesting artists. And there's another painter, uh, Jim Regula, who was also really great. Went on to um, work in advertising at a, on a really top level, and it was. I just really loved the experience. I mean, it was the first time I was taken like serious as an artist, not mm-hmm. just a student, and and to see that and to feel that from other peers that was the key and right. that's the thing that that's the advantage that I think students get when they go there I mean I'm you know a big promoter of that program now just because I had been talking about it recently but it in um, but it really is I think those types of experiences the summer programs are really important to try to get out there and do I did the landscape painting program the, the summer before out in uh, Long Island mm-hmm. at this mansion um, called Consett State Park and it's just the idea that waking up every day and painting and, um, and then getting together and looking at the paintings and trying to find a way of talking about it. Uh, right. And being, yeah, and being taken seriously by your peers and as, a, as an artist, not just a student. And that, right. was, that was the key thing. Was there a greater diversity of work there than when you were at Mass Art? Or was it pretty similar? Well, no, it was, <clears throat> I think that um, Mass Art, um, was really diverse and but it was 
it was, I think mass art really had the, um, the you know, the, the cooler thing to do there would be in, to be in sim, and that was um, really, you know, the studio, studio for interrelated media, and, and to be doing performance art, you know, mm -hmm. and, uh, and painting, although it occupied a lot of the, you know, classes and all of that, was, was yeah, not seen as being very cool to do. Yeah. So mm -hmm. when you when you left, I mean, Boston's such a great town. Yeah. To this day, for music and mm -hmm. for art, mm -hmm. it's got a lot of stuff going on. Then you moved to New Haven. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Then was there a lot going on there, or would you go up to Boston or down to New York while you were um, there, or did you just kind of focus for two years? No, I mean, I was down in New York yeah. um, all the time, and in fact, I was accused of um, being an East Village artist when oh, I was yeah. by the faculty at Yale um, because I was so into the the scene, you know, right. and so into going to all the shows and the not to the openings as much as I, if I could, um, but yeah, I mean, it was you know the East Village uh, was um, coming to a close at that point, but still pretty vital. Mm -hmm. A lot of the galleries are moving to Soho. Um, but then again, yeah, I mean, you could go to the C. Castelli Gallery, Mary Boone Gallery, and all that. But and then, you, you know, you had, uh, you know, Civilian Warfare, you know, Paizo Electric, <laughs> Fun Gallery. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and later, um, uh, International Monument um, and, uh, and Nature Mort, uh, those galleries um, were really important to me. Cable Gallery was a really important gallery on Broadway and, um, and Houston Street, you know, um, with... Uh, you know, Clarissa Darrymple and um, um, Nicole Clagsburn uh, being the proprietors of a, of a great gallery that was super um, on the limit, you know, showing um, great art of all kinds at that time. Um, so I, I really was very keen on you know, seeing that uh, stuff, and I rarely went up to, to Boston to, to look at art at all, although... Um, when I was in Boston, the uh, the Institute of Contemporary Art was was fantastic. Mm -hmm. They did um, bring a lot of the great artists of the time up to to show there. You know, the Barbara Kruger shows and the Sherry Levine shows and the Cindy Sherman shows and Peter Halley and Ross Blechner and everybody else. It was um, you know they were they were really good at getting good shows there. Yeah. So did your work change a lot while you were in Yale? Yeah, I mean, it did. I mean, almost immediately. Um, you threw Motherwell out when you came in the door? <laughs> <laughs> well, it was funny. I remember the first painting I showed in that, that opening group show. It was, uh -huh. it was this kind of funny painting, and it, and it was, like, loud and obnoxious and all that. And then um, I had the studio visit, like, two weeks in with, um, with Mel Bachner, and he didn't even come into my studio. Uh, I mean, this is a story I've told a million times, but he literally put his hand on the doorknob and looked into my studio. And, and, and he, um, he said, Richard, uh, can you define what conventional means for me? And I gave him some stupid answer, like our, our non-answer. And he just said, well, conventional um, is what, given a set of circumstances, everyone would naturally do. And when you've understood that, have me back for a studio visit, and then <laughs> close the door and walk out. Subtle, subtle. That was it. Yeah. And so I was like in a total crisis at that point. I was like, I had these paintings going in the studio, and I was like, I was like, you know, forget it. I'm not going to do this anymore. And so I um, started making uh, wall sculpture, and I would say like within two weeks, I I made a lot of wall sculpture. Yeah. <laughs> and. Um, and then I called a, a school-wide 
critique um, in the pit uh, at the ANA building, um, which I filled entirely with these large um, wall relief sculptures. You wanted feedback. Yeah, and yeah. so I invited um, every department, the whole like both classes, everything, and it was like this big thing. And I, I stood in the middle of the pit, like wearing like kind of like ill-fitting coveralls, you know, with my <laughs> arms crossed, you know, and then just uh, had this kind of like gave this like uh, talk about what I thought I was doing, and then people just thrashed it. Oh, yeah. yeah, it was, uh, and that was great. I mean, that was my first experience. But from there on, you know, I made you know kind of hybridized painting, uh, wall sculpture, and never turned back. Um, and my thesis show was that. How did you make that shift? Like, what were you looking at that made that shift to wall sculpture? Was well, there something you yeah, saw specifically, or yeah. you just wanted to get off the the two D? I think it was like, um, and this is so art schooly too. When I say it, I'm a Halfway embarrassed um, is that I was I, I I've learned about Blinky Palermo for the first time mm -hmm. and um, you know because in the sculpture department which was really you know uh, a big deal at the time I mean Hammond Hall and, and everything they were like much more um, there was there was more power centered there um, although we had down the line we had like better artists in, the, in our right. in our year in the painting department. They had this uh, in-school stature. They did, and so, uh, yeah, you know, you had somebody like, you know, Benjamin Booklow coming and doing a, uh, a boys, uh, like, year-long seminar, which I actually sat in on. Um, and so through that, I learned about Palermo and, you know, Basels and different people that were um, students of, of boys. And Palermo in particular, and, and, and even further than that, like the Stuftbilder paintings, the Faber paintings, um, were something that kind of like, you know, made a lot of sense to me on a really basic level. You know that that they were they were stand-ins for a certain type of painting experience, and you know, it changed my thinking about um, minimal art and how expressive it can be uh, in in the most reductive terms, and but yet how material and, and sensitivity and uh, could also uh, play a role in that. So, but then at the same time, you know. There's like the music scene, there's the shows that I like seeing, um, you know, like Live Skull and Sonic Youth and, you know, all that stuff uh, going on down in um, New York at the time, the, um, you know, you know uh, the Swans, you know, and all that. You know, I had to reconcile that with working in my studio, which right. was really hard to do. You know, and then you had like, Albums like the you know Mita's Murder coming out and uh, you know the Gun Clubs um, Miami you know um, and you know uh, Zen Arcade and all you know uh, first Minuteman album you know it, you have like really important stuff happening and then you go to your studio and you're like what am I doing yeah <laughs> and it's Is like it art doesn't and, and and well yeah I mean it, like that conventional doesn't even hold up as a measure you yeah. know for anything when you have these kinds of experiences. So it was really hard and having, the only thing, and I actually, only now, like this moment, am I thinking about it, it was like being talentless in terms of music and yet being appreciative of what of its power, like it was such a gap, like such a, a gulf of like emptiness of not, of not realizing power and um, expressive in my art that, right. That pushed me to really um, try harder, you know, 
at making art to try to get it to that point, you know, to get it to where it could deliver on that level, or at least my perceived level of what, you know, the bands that I thought were really cool at the time, because I, you know, of the art that was going on. I mean, and that's uh, and that's your language. Yeah. Whereas music, you can kind of see what they're doing and really appreciate them working within their language, but that's not your intuitive language, really. Yeah. So I mean, I, I saw like the first cocktail. Um, twin show, yeah. I know, at, at like some little bar in Boston. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Literally, you know, like you have Elizabeth Frazier and Simon and whatever, like three of them standing on stage with a drum machine, you know, playing Garland's, you know, for that first time and, and, uh, and having her lose it when they didn't have an encore, you mm-hmm. know, because they only had the, the tapes for the set. Oh, and right, when the right. and, and the set went over really well with the audience, <laughs> and like she started, I, I don't know if she was crying or what, but she lo- like, and then they just um, walked off the stage. And it was like they they, they couldn't they couldn't uh, deal. But it's like moments like that. I was like, how is how does art how is like and, and that kind of do that? I mean, thankfully, um, the ICA kind of saved me from that because the shows were so cool. Mm-hmm. You know, like seeing like a Francesco Clemente show or something like that, um, you know, or seeing Ross's show that they ha- he had there um, was really powerful. I was, and yet, I don't know, was it, was it like, was, I don't know. I mean, I said so there was like a, there was like a discrepancy, but I, I saw that there was potential for sure, you know, and then going, and then in New York, finally seeing like these, you know, like Schnabel shows and, you know, I don't know, whatever else that I saw. Yanis Canellas, or you know, um, you know, you can see like there was a there was a way forward to do it. Yeah, know. it's difficult though. I do that all the time where I'm trying to relate or compare art, you know, painting, mm-hmm. sculpture, and music, and that mm-hmm. expression. But it's so hard because music is so direct. Yeah, and art just can't do that. Like I know. It, it's such a different pace. You know, it's such a bummer. Yeah. I don't know. I, like, but there's a beauty to it though. I mean, art has uh-huh. its own kind of slower, different kind of connection yeah. that can be wonderful. It's got its own language, but music is so direct. And it's well, you so have the dual thing of being both, and I don't, so it's kind of like I have no capacity to express myself. So when I, I've, I have learned, however, that musicians are interested in art, yeah. you know, yeah. and, and they like visual art because yeah. it's great for album covers or whatever, right. you know, yeah. and then that has a bearing on, on how their music is perceived. It know, totally and, informs and, and, their stuff, yeah. And, uh, you know, and that was highlighted for me when um, that band, Dirty Vegas, asked me to do yeah. their album cover, and then it went like into this kind of global, you know, craziness yeah. and Grammys and all of that. And, and having the images be the, really the placeholder, I guess, for the sound. It's and, the and, face and, of that record. Yeah, yeah, literally. Literally, <laughs> the face of it. Yeah. And, uh, you know, those, uh, those guys were just uh, in touch with me um, to, like, re-release the record. And, oh, really? Um, and to use How the artwork. How many years has it been? It has been... Feels like yesterday. 15 years. Jeez. Yeah, it was 2002, yeah. I think, uh, when that came out, and they won a um, Grammy for Best Dance Album or something like that. And, and I remember seeing those all over the city, on those Weed Paste posters everywhere. It was there, and it was all over... Um, it was EMI at the mm-hmm. time, so yeah. they, it was in... It was pretty impressive. I mean, that was back when the music industry was still paying into um, yeah. massive advertising. They still do it for, like really mega big hits right. but it's uh, um, and at that point they were pretty convinced and they knew they had that with this because of the Mitsubishi commercial yeah um, but when I was uh, coming into London for a show um, 
the uh, yeah, in 2002, was, uh, I was doing my first White Cube show, and I get off the plane. I'm coming out of Heathrow, and there's a big field where there is a like a the biggest billboard I think I've ever seen in my life. It was like multitudes of billboards size in an open field, you know, um, and it was. Um, uh, my painting on the billboard, you mm -hmm. know, and it just said days goodbye, and it was like it was the it was like seeing uh, my painting, which I mean ridiculous, like painting it in my studio or whatever, right. um, on that. And then when I got into town, the the bills were posted like on all the streets, and um, and I had this uh, funny experience that was very British. Of course, I went to one of the restaurants. It could have been St. John's or something like mm -hmm. that, and I, you know, I, it was. You know, I think this is my second show in London, and I am not really tied into the scene at all. And I'm outside of the restaurant, and this like this British guy was like, "So, Richard, what do you do?" You know, and, and like I'm like it was my show, right? And yeah. I was like there for my own show, and I think it even may have been my dinner or something like that. And he didn't realize that it was me or whatever. <laughs> and I was like, um, I was like, oh God, these Brits with this like uh, attitude, and. What was great, though, was that across the street from me was um, this construction area with bills like that went up and down the length of the mm -hmm. street, and the entire thing was done in my paintings, yeah. um, like from one end to the other, and they were big, you know. And yeah. so I just, I just pointed across the street and said, "That's what I do," <laughs> and uh, you know, that's 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 pretty convenient. That's, yeah, that's what I do. And then New York was the same way. I mean, yeah. it was like everywhere in New York. And then people sent pictures from L.A., from Sunset Strip, and then from, you know, so it was really at a time where images, um, and, and particularly um, painting, you know, and I think that that's what was so shocking about that. Uh, and I wasn't shocking, you know, like James and Jason was shocking, but right. it was, you know, that an album cover could use a painting, um, that like had this kind of connection, you know, like you look into the, the the person portrayed, painted, and that could be different, you know, that there was like a different feeling. It was different from photography, and yeah. you know, and uh, I really felt like, well, I, I could understand that because it was like this kind of sense of something being beautiful that was made, and uh, and it could hold hold feeling, and and that. Uh, you know, it's kind of like what they were doing with that music. I mean, it was like that burnout club music mm -hmm. um, that they kind of made theirs. You know? Yeah. Did that, after that experience and being so associated with that record, mm -hmm. did it change your perception sometimes of the images you were making? It was whereas you were signing some sort of musical relationship to what you're doing? Or did it just, that was just like a thing that happened and you didn't necessarily... I inform I the way you you see your work in relation to sound. Um, well, I think that like that would have been the ideal, <laughs> you know, kind of <laughs> self-realization. But I don't really think that happened as much because it's like I remember going to the um, EMI party for the Grammys, and then seeing like the Neptunes or something like that, you mm -hmm. know, um, and uh, and and then you just see the talent level there. Yeah, <laughs> you know, that yeah. it's just like bonkers so yeah. far off the end of the dial the dirty vegas guys were djing the event and the neptunes were playing and it was just like seeing pharrell i mean like in that iteration yeah i mean it was just like talent beyond imagination it was just incredible in that way and so it was cool to have art be kind of involved in that because it wasn't like strict illustration for art uh, you know it was like an appropriation of an artwork for the purposes of creating identity right um, that had a feeling that was 
that was commensurate with the music. So I felt like, yeah, that was, you know, it wasn't something that I could really aspire to because we kind of, you know, worked with this um, um, a blues source. I think it was the um, design team in London that was there. And, and they were really smart about how to match the music to the image, you know, because we did singles as well as the album cover. Yeah. And they used other paintings of mine for that. And then, and then they likewise pushed the images out. And it, it really um, changed my thinking about how, what paintings could do in media, you know, right. and, and, and it, it changed uh, going into the future. And how it gets out there. Right? Yeah. Yeah, mm -hmm. it's a totally different... Um, wait, does that? Do you get excited about getting the work out there in those different channels like that? It definitely inspired me to um, uh, follow that direction down the line. Like yeah. in, in collaborations that I did with other, um, you know, with like uh, Mac Cosmetics, which was like a global thing. Right. And uh, I mean, I was it, it opened me up to possible things that way. Now there's an upside to that, and there's a downside to that right. uh, in terms of like exposure and what and what one, um, you know, what that might mean, but. Um, and it also, I think more specifically, it like made me think about art beyond the art world, like mm -hmm. trying to, and, and pop in unreal terms, but in right. like contempor real contemporary terms, not like pop within the assignation of contemporary art, but right. like within contemporary, you know, like global society. I think uh, having seen my images get so far out there uh, with the record, um, you know, and then I did another collaboration with the photographers uh, in his Spirit and Vinyat Madadi and, yeah. and did that with V magazine and, and had a painting of one of their photographs on the cover of that magazine and have that reach out into the, um, beyond the you know, art world into like fashion or this and that. Mm -hmm. That really, um, like, it made me feel like I, I really wanted to get out of the art world uh, with, right. with my art. And, uh, and then... You know, which led all the way up to like 2012 when I did the films, you know, mm -hmm. and, the, and the paintings um, with Lindsay and Sasha and Adriana. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, well, taking it back a little bit, when you got out of grad school, mm -hmm. you knew you were moving right down to the city. I had no other choice. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it was, it was, I, I was really committed to doing that. Mm -hmm. Did you get a studio in the village? My first studio was on, um, Worcester Street uh, between Prince and Spring. It was unbelievable. I was, I thought I was like, you know, like, wow, this is great. But it was, it was, it wasn't good. You know? Neighborhoods changed. Uh, but then I um, moved right, for, like, by the end of the summer, I moved over. I actually found my first studio on uh, Ludlow Street, um, mm -hmm. above where that piano's um, yeah. is now. And um, I was like on the fourth floor there with Jack Risley and Sean Landers was there. Peter Boynton was, uh, on, they were on the top floor and John Kern was across the street as was, uh, I think Lisa and Matt, Lisa Yaskavich and Matthew Levenstein were like a little bit further down the street. So we were all in this kind of like clump of, um, uh, you know, you know, and it was a really different situation down yeah, there. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it was not um, what it is now. It was, uh, you know, run by um, Dominican and Puerto Rican gangs, and um, there was really heavy drug trade and prostitution scenarios going on mm -hmm. everywhere at all times, and, um, and we were, you know, the uh, interlopers, you know, like... Nervously making art in the midst of all that. <laughs> yeah, and going to the hat, you know, yeah. um, and, uh, you know, seeing, like, Allen Ginsberg and the boys, you mm -hmm. know, uh, <laughs> like, we, they were, like, uh, eating there, and we would be, like, in our own little table, and I think, um, you know, what I learned from the hat was, like, how many um, crack margaritas it took to black out, I would say. 
<laughs> on the street training. Uh, on the doorstep training. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. If I like, I remember hitting the doorstep pretty hard as on my way out of the, uh, the restaurant. Like I didn't get further than the doorstep. You know? Right. <laughs> I had to be like dragged into my studio building. But well, how did you how did you start? Connecting with Gat, like where did you start showing? Well, you know, at that time there, you it was like, you know, you come out of art school with your slide sheet. Yeah. You know, there was no Remember internet. Those? Yeah, like there was no nothing, and uh, the four by fives weren't even around. Right. So it was just slide sheet, and you would like try to get like a recommendation, or you would bring slides and drop them off to galleries or whatever like that, and that wouldn't do anything. And it, even if you got like a recommendation, that wouldn't do any, anything. Um, but the I was fortunate in the sense that um, the neighbor of mine at the in the across the hall in um, in the building was uh, this artist uh, this Israeli artist uh, um, Izar Pakin mm-hmm. and um, he was like blowing up huge at the time uh, with the Whitney's and the Biennial with these giant uh, paintings on rubber curtains and they're really great he was doing paintings on like screens and velvet and all that and he was tied into the whole seen there and he really liked my um, my paint you know, like these sculptures that are that I was making and he told um, the guy he was shown by Holly Solomon gallery mm-hmm. so he told the director of the gallery um, about my work and then the director told Bill Arning who was uh, the head of white columns about mm-hmm. my work and then eventually Bill came over to see the work and put me in my first uh, group show with my padded leather sculptures because the studio had been a dog collar manufacturing um, uh, company and they when they abandoned their space uh, they left all the leather and the machines behind. I got mm-hmm. rid of the machines but I kept all the leather so yeah. I started in the kind of uh, Stift builder type of way started stretching the leather over um, forms and, uh, and padding it with you know um, foam rubber mm-hmm. uh, and uh, making abstract um, you know, like padded uh, wall um, painting sculptures, you know, but, you know, and then from there, I kind of um, went up, I was, I found out about the, um, you know, the 30s, you know, on the west side, uh, Mm -hmm. where they had this store called Leather Facts, which was a virtual palette of leather of every possible kinds of colors from Dayglo to, um, to um, metallic, um, you know, gasoline swirl, every possible type of leather you can think of and so, so I was able to um, expand that way and yeah. so Bill gave me I was in my first group show and then um, I think Holly Solomon uh, did a visit and um, you know Manuel Gonzalez who I guess went on to work at Chase Bank he was the director at the time um, also David Lieber who was working at uh, who's now with uh, Zwerner was working there at the time and, and they um, gave me my first uh, show um, which was in 87 I think a year after getting out of art school uptown on Fifth Avenue so that yeah. was like a big a big leap for yeah. me like going from zero to that you're and excited at that point and making a lot of work yeah and it was also like I was the first of my group to to get a show <laughs> you know and they were like what you were know? you still day jobbing it though a hundred percent, yeah. I mean, I uh, worked in, I mean, that was like a crazy part of what I was doing. Um, I immediately had to get work. I had no uh, way to support myself otherwise, yeah. and I was doing construction jobs. I had no idea how to be a carpenter or a house. I didn't have any skills, and I just um, used my ability to talk uh, to get me into those <laughs> jobs, and um, I had some really, I, I, I ended up working for a contractor who was the contractor to the stars. Mm-hmm. And 
Um, so he had um, Mick Jagger and um, Andy Warhol and Bianca Jagger and Richard Gere and all these people are his clients. So I would be moved around from job site to job site to um, uh, you know be involved in, in those jobs to whatever capacity I, I had, which was pretty much not, nothing. <laughs> you know? It was really fun. <laughs> Um, to see the homes and to see the, the lifestyle. It was wild. Yeah. You know? I mean, my first real job was working in the basement of um, Interview Magazine, and so, which had a bearing on me later when I made my uh, Rob Lowe painting, because yeah. uh, I was literally surrounded by those magazines um, uh, from 1984. You know. Burned into your retina, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. Richard Bernstein became like a, like a patron saint. Yeah, and uh, I ended up talking to him before he before he died because he reached out to me having seen my painting at PS One, mm-hmm. um, and he was like, "Wow, it's so cool that you you know I mean instead of like serving me with a you know right like, right uh, uh, how dare you use yeah, my like, image yeah and, and suing me he called me to say how um, thrilled he was that I made a painting of his paintings and did I want to come and visit his studio and 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 that he was just honored to like you know have and i was just like i was blown away he was such a phenomenal guy and it just really all the more convinced me of how a great an artist he he, uh, he was if only everyone could be that cool about uh, images very true <laughs> very true so how did you make the leap because you start showing that stuff mm-hmm. how did you get back into painting was that further down the road mm-hmm. or I, so you did the sculptural work for a until while. about 1989, uh, 90, and then I stopped. Uh, I literally, uh, you know, the the nightlife and living in the East Village um, kind of took over my, uh, you know, it was just it was just too much of a free for all, yeah. and that eventually caught up to me in about 1990, and I would say by 91 I had stopped making art. I think I. Because um, I felt like an upholsterer at that point, and I was just—I really had kind of lost uh, track of what I was doing. Um, mm-hmm. I had to move out of that studio because of a terrible fire there. I ended up being in the this, in this studio over a further East Village, and it just never really came together over there. Um, and I, then I curated a show uh, at Simon Watson Gallery called Total Metal, which was this—yeah, it was a show of um, metal and um, and art, you know, mm-hmm. and. Uh, it you know was covered by MTV. It was like the biggest opening that I'd ever seen, and like you know guys from like um, uh, you know uh, you know from the, the band showed up. I mean it, it was just crazy, and I was like, this is way more fun. I had the after party at the at the limelight. Yeah, I think even like Sebastian Bach showed up. You know what I, mean? yeah, <laughs> I heard that name. Yeah, yeah. You no, know, but it was that moment. Yeah, yeah. Because. Uh, I think it was Sean uh, Lander's younger brother, Kevin, had like a Nirvana piece in the mm-hmm. show, which was obviously the undoing of that whole thing. And, yeah. and so the show really, and it had everybody in it. I mean, you know, Ashley Bickerton was in it, um, you know, Kath, um, Catherine Bernhardt, and uh, I don't know, uh, John Curran. Um, there was just so much, uh, you know, stuff in the show. It was like uh, an installation piece that I, you know, I mean, Pruitt and Early were in the show. This artist from L.A., Tom Henry, was in the show. He's a very cool artist. Um, this big Black Sabbath painting. And mm-hmm. it was really, it was, art was fun, you know, and, yeah. and the opening was fun and all that. And I was like, man, it should be fun like this all the time, right? Right. And so, uh, but then I just stopped everything. And, um, and I... Um, I started drawing, you know. Um, at this point, there was no galleries involved with me. Like, it, everything had gone away. 
And uh, I just started drawing with like a Sharpie pen on typewriter paper in my East Village apartment. This is early 90s? This was 1992. So the market's down too, right? Yeah, it was. A lot like, of political work is happening. A lot of um, identity politics, yeah. a lot of uh, installation. Because that uh, biennial was really, yeah. um, the early 90s biennial, wasn't it? Yeah. Very kind of identity mm-hmm. based. Yeah. But then you had like, galleries like American Fine Art. Yeah. Pat Hearn and all that um, feature gallery, everything. You know, there was like a certain aesthetic going on, mm-hmm. none of which uh, suited what I was uh, thinking about. And really, the biggest um, single influence of my art career uh, um, happened when I was at. I went to this Matthew McCaslin opening. I think it was at Danny Newberg Gallery on Broadway, mm-hmm. and um, which was all neon lights. It was kind of like. Um, you know, Flavin Redux showing all the wires, I guess right. is how you would put it. And um, I went to, the, I, I crashed the after party um, at Danny's loft down on White Street, um, mm-hmm. which was close to uh, like Terry Winter's loft and like places where I had done construction jobs. Yeah. Um, and in, you know, like, you know, it was like this party, and I just like obviously was this interloper. I come in there and uh, and on the wall in the in the space was this painting that was like crap brown and white, and there were these mirrors plastered to it, and it, like the paint was on the canvas, it was on the mirrors, and it was like basically it was like a plinth with like an eagle in a corner of a room, image mm-hmm. with like these mirrors that would reflect into the room, and it was painted in the like worst possible awful paint, and I was like, who did this painting? And it was Albert Owen, <laughs> and I was like. Wow, that looks fantastic! And mm-hmm. so I, um, I found out that he showed at Loring Augustine, and I went right over there. And I like, but I had no money, but I like, I went and like somehow scraped together the money and got all of his catalogs, you know. And then from there, that led me to Kippenberger, and from there, that led me to like Werner Butner and to, um, you know, uh, Georg Harald and on all these kind of Cologne, you know, I don't know German. Um, uh, painters, and it was like, oh, this is great. This is like I can do um, neo East Village art, like right after East Village art. Right, right. And so I was in this little apartment on Seventh Street, and I just started making these really nasty paintings. You know, like awful nasty paintings, like completely inspired by this thing. But it's like I'm an American painter, so I'm painting this way. Right. And um, and then eventually, uh, I was dating someone who worked at Edward Thorpe Gallery. And he saw these paintings and was like, this is fantastic. Wow, wow how cool is this? Mm-hmm. And uh, he put me in a group show. I mean, nothing transpired from it, but I had this exposure, of my first exposure of these paintings. And, um, and then also Paul Ha, who was then the curator at um, White Columns, mm-hmm. and White Columns comes back into the picture again. Um, he uh, did a show with um, paintings and all, like a whole wall full of drawings that were just awful, like completely unhinged drawings, you know, like from the imaginations, like quasi-surrealist, quasi-neo-expressionist East Village surrealist art, you know, on typewriter paper, <laughs> yeah. and, you know, with uh, gouache and pen and ink and Sharpie pen, and, and, and they were literally like psychotic um, ruminations on uh, East Village living in 1992. Right. And, and and John and Curran and Sean Landers at the time were like absolutely blowing up in the art world and they were just saying, Richard, you just gotta, you just gotta make these into paintings and just go for it. And so I did and, um, and it was kind of like bumping along and you know, nothing was really happening and then I got this, uh, like the show that I was in, 
these guys from Tennessee, um, uh, from the University of Tennessee, uh, Michael Baraki, um, who's a, runs the direct, uh, was director of the program there, saw them and said, hey man, do you want to come down and teach at the University of Tennessee? And I was like, fantastic, I don't have a, like a studio, I would love to do that, they'll, they'll give you a studio, you can teach some classes. And so I went down there and had this experience of like poisoning the mind of these students down there and then I was giving and then I just painted so much and of the southern gothic lifestyle like mm -hmm. just like crazy you know like one room churches and possums and you know uh, Tennessee Vols uh, football game you know like you know mascots and all it was like really getting into that kind of um, Appalachia you know uh, 1994 style and I came back to New York and I was like man, uh, the city is really different from the South, you know? Yeah. And at that point I realized like the, what I was, these narrative kind of wacky paintings weren't gonna cut it and I had to, um, you know, make a decision to change my art again. And yeah. that's when I started the first um, portrait paintings. Um, but how did you time. end up there? Like what took you to that place? Because it, it seems like everything before that is mm -hmm. so visceral and mm -hmm. kind of almost in a way unconnected to the, the reproduced him or the image yeah. displayed as image and more about this primal kind of like wrestling through material to image or something yeah yeah so I mean, how did you well I mean the beginnings of it happened in, in Tennessee like mm -hmm. when I was making these very careful portrait drawings like I did one of John Taylor of Duran Duran <laughs> you know yeah. um, and then I did one of um, the, the like is it Anna Mignana from the Pasolini like I did like a portrait of one of Pasolini's actors mm -hmm. um, and they were like straight up portraits and they look like the work I was going to do eventually um, and but there, so it was it really like everything else that I do it always happens in drawing first right. and then um, when I got back to New York and the whole cosmopolitan nature of being back in New York with billboards and this and that. I mean, that sounds cliche, but it was so striking to me that I realized that like this narrative uh, wacky thing that I was doing wasn't gonna cut it. And, um, you know, I found this book, um, or was given a book more accurately, um, that had this image of, um, it, was, it was about, it was like a self-help book. It was about like a visual self-help book about what to do like after the divorce or whatever. And one of the things that you could do is to give yourself like a face mask, you know. And and so I, I literally, from one painting to the next, like of these kind of 30 by 40 paintings, to, uh, I like I stretched up a, you know, a, I don't know, a, a five foot by four foot uh, painting of, um, a uh, of this person with a yellow towel on their head and a white face mask, mm -hmm. um, and there was just no. It was just literally one thing to the next, and but the look on this person's face was just like one of like you know like help you know in a way, right. but not like overly dramatic. It was just like this emptiness, you know, like a soullessness, and um, I and and the scale of it seemed right too, um, and so. I um, I said, well, this is interesting. I don't know. And I remember having a studio visit at the time uh, with uh, Friedrich Petzl, mm -hmm. um, who I'd later show with, and he was like, uh, yeah, these narrative things are kind of interesting, but I like this one, you know, better, you know, this new one. Yeah. So I don't know, like, have me over whenever you do some more of those. Right. And by the way, who did this photograph? On, you know, and then mm -hmm. like, uh, you know, like this uh, person I was dating at the time. Um, 
had a photograph on my wall, like I given it to me, and so that person ended up showing up at the gallery, you know, mm-hmm. like still while they were still in grad school at Yale, <laughs> and I was like still <laughs> looking for a gallery, like help. <laughs> Um, but it was like it was really it was kind of um, a thing where it was just um, uh, I just made this choice to to start this thing and then um, the way it really came together was I was coming home from a you know going to a show I think at CBD or something like that and I was walking down Second Street um, you know between Second and First and you know across from the Slate graveyard there and there was like a perfectly stacked magazines uh, this photographer was moving out of their apartment and there was all these stock photography magazines from the 60s and 70s um, like all neatly arranged um, um, to be recycled um, or being thrown out I don't think they recycled back then and um, I was like wow and I I literally it took it was like one or two in the morning and I literally made I don't know how many trips back and forth walking from there to uh, 7th between A and B to get all those magazines back to my um to my little apartment where I was painting also. It was like 144 square, uh, square feet. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then I just, um, that's literally where that first um, big show came from and the show that would ended up being, uh, um, you know, ended up tripping the whole thing over and making it happen. Uh, whereas looking at these images of, from fashion and um, from that time period and, um, and then applying a painting technique that was, you know, from the, 16th century, you know, yeah. to and something that I learned in Boston University, to um, images that were the, like the the images that were not considered art in the 60s. You know, they were considered fashion, yeah. and that was not art. You know, and yet it had um, influenced people like Warhol and, and Wesselman and mm-hmm. and everybody else. But um, I and I painted them just as like with no narrative uh, addition, like no like no. I wasn't being. I just like took all the cleverness out of it and let that emptiness, um, you know, uh, kind of resonate. Yeah. And because at the time, in fashion, you know, like heroin chic was really Kate important. Yeah. yeah, and that was really important. And I, I didn't want to paint her. I mean, everybody was painting her, or whatever. But what I did want to do was um, like, like literally flesh out that kind of emptiness um, that the you know uh, and like make that sculpturally real like in terms of the mind like I like uh, like as hollow an image as I can possibly make as it's kind a, of neo-punk in a way that detachment <coughs> yeah like a next level of yeah I mean, it's kind of like it's kind of like the silent version of like suicidal tendencies yeah. you know like right. all I wanted was a Pepsi and it's like it's like really like it's like the, an utter beautiful pointlessness and I remember I think one of the most attributed quotes I gave at the time, it's, it's like a kind of wasted beauty or something like that. <laughs> and and, and uh, yeah, I mean, because that's really, I think, you know, that's what I really wanted. I, I think I went and saw like Oasis or something, like, like their first show. Yeah. And uh, and that really was loud too, man. Um, right. And, but like it was that kind of feeling of like, there was nothing new to be gained, but there was, uh, but by the, but by going older, like with the method, and um, and and having the method be like centuries out of out of tune with uh, what was going on, and then having the um, the uh, imagery be um, you know decades out of out of phase, uh, you know, it, it seemed to it seemed to work. And you know, when I was in Tennessee, I gave these lectures, like I gave an '80s lecture, you know, mm-hmm. in, in 1994, which was a lot of fun. And then I gave this other lecture, and these were like. You know, uh, you know, auditorium monster lectures where I got all these slides from the galleries and 
everything. Um, and I gave this other one on 70s, 90s, you know, where it was, so it really like pointed up the idea that um, this idea of appropriating um, uh, like so-called like original thought, you know, like, mm -hmm. uh, you know, uh, taking process art and installation and identity politics and then literally appropriating, like really falsifying them, misappropriating them, stealing it and then pre presenting it as though it had never happened before, which really was what the 90s was all about, in a way. It's like, the, it's like the, there was a posture of like innovation that was um, being uh, reproduced to, to kind of um, mesh with the uh, downturn in the um, art market. Yeah. So how was that work received kind of, because you're playing a little bit with um, embracing a critique of mm. this is just surp or this is empty or this yeah. is detached mm -hmm. and obviously you're aware of it but I'm sure it strikes a nerve with some viewers that like mm -hmm. that work is is not taking a stand there's not it's not critiquing it necessarily it's kind of just languidly just displaying it or something yeah. was that kind of the, the I mean and an Amer the American audience saw mm -hmm. it explicitly as a flat um, like soulless representation right. of I mean and so it was criticized um, for that right but in Europe, um, the dialectic that I was attempting to get a hold of. They got it. Immediately. Yeah. So it was kind of like, in a way, the same way that Warhol was understood. And I mean, I'm not going to like, it is a useful comparison, but not on the same scale, probably. Um, but it was, there was like an implicit understanding of what, the, uh, how I was looking at American culture and, uh, and consumer culture, uh, beauty culture. Um, and. And I think that, so that's where, um, you know, I would, like the work started being shown in um, my first survey show, I mean, if you can even call it that, I haven't been painting for like, um, God, for four years, <laughs> uh, was in, it was at the Kunsthalle Zurich, mm -hmm. and uh, Mendes Berge, the curator there, put on a show of, the, of my paintings, and it, and it really, I, I mean, people really got it, they really understood it. I mean, I'd <clears throat> already been in, included in group shows in, in Berlin, and. London and um, uh, and Cologne and uh, and elsewhere and, and people yeah they uh, started to understand that this was uh, um, a way of, of thinking but in the in the, in the U.S. absolutely not I mean there was like I with the exception of Dallas you know <laughs> because <laughs> I got this opportunity from John Runyon um, and Kenneth Turner to do a show in 1997 in Deep Ellum in Dallas and there is just something about Dallas that they were just open to it, you know, and uh, Michael Opping from the um, Fort Worth Museum, uh, it was really the first museum that got involved in my work and got a really cool painting of mine, Girl Child, and mm -hmm. uh, that was looking at this, you know, kind of like jealousy of age from two perspectives, like wanting to be younger and wanting to be older at the same time and, and like being like this kind of self-critique of, of being com uncomfortable forever. Yeah. And um, I think that you know, Dallas just has this kind of extra thing about it. I don't know what it is, but I mean, it's still, I still feel that way about it to today. Like it's a good, it's a good place to, to show art. And, yeah. you know, I mean, they have that um, great McDermott and McGuff show up there now, and they're, they've got a lot of good things planned. Dallas Contemporary is such a great museum for that. Um, but other than that, really, um, there was, you know, there was really nothing in it for me. I, I mean, uh, I did a show that same year with Shoshana Wayne in, in LA, but like, and it was, it was kind of cool, but 
I, I don't think LA really understood it at, at the time either. Which is ironic. Yeah, because it was really about them, you know, <laughs> and uh, I didn't really have any, and I, I mean, I really tried to make it happen that way. I mean, yeah. there were giant paintings that I made for that. Some of the paintings, you know, went off, you know, and around the world a bit, but, um, you know, it was, but at the same time, it was, uh, like, there wasn't a lot of positive reception in this country for, for my artwork. I mean, mm -hmm. certainly not critically at all. You know, all the, any type of, um, um, understanding was uh, European, you know, like from um, magazines over there and stuff like that. It always yeah. amazes me post Warhol mm -hmm. that, especially in America, that the critical eye has an inability to get past the <coughs> initial response to mm -hmm. what the image is quoting or what the dialogue of that kind of imagery is. Yeah. And assumes that the artist is just embracing the, the kind of images that they're making. Do you know what I mean? Like there's this yeah. inability to kind of think, oh, that person might be questioning it, even yeah. though they're fully embracing the making of it. So, like, if they've made it, they must buy into it because they spent all that time making it, which is... Yeah, I've, I've definitely... Um, that's been whole scale, like, the, 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 the way that it's been read here in this country is that, that people think that I'm really only part of the problem and not, like, <laughs> I'm making a critique of what... That is, but in Europe, it's the absolute opposite. It's like it's seen as uh, for what I, I intended. But again, in order for it to function, you have to like have it be um, open to being misread. Yeah. And um, and then you know, there's something that Beatrix Roof uh, came up with about my work, which is a a productive misreading of my work. And you, and it it has to be open to that um, possibility. And of course where there's a possibility that real reality uh, definitely has come to pass. Right. More often than not with my work, for sure. And, um, yeah, and there's consequences to that for sure. also. You know, I mean, there really are, you know, um, especially in this country. Um, but um, thankfully, it's a big world. Yeah, yeah, there's other <laughs> people, know. there's a wide variety of people these days who get to see work, which is great. Yeah, I so mean, much more so than ever. And actually, that hasn't really worked well for me <laughs> it's like we'll see upcoming we'll see how that uh, you know if there is any potential good to be gleaned from that but it's still it's still pretty bad you know? I, w I was really interested too in some of these images that I saw of yours that were sort of smaller kind of graphically oppy mm -hmm. but they reminded me of like you know what a force field painting would look like like or you yeah. know something that's kind of triggering an oppy thing but it's aggressive and it's vibrating and it's it's mm -hmm. a it, you know it seemed totally different than the sort of reference of the image and of the the portrait that you were doing what was that work that was like a a, a group of works that i i made and i'm i guess i showed about a year ago like it was kind of the penultimate show at almin resh in, in brussels and it was like three and a half years of like working on like basically taking apart the uh, imagery that i had worked with and working it on a, in a kind of digitally um, uh, like that, some type of digital intervention whether like it was in, um, in the uh, not pixelization but like kind of like these programs that can take apart images and then I found that I could produce them by creating these big um, vinyls and then cutting them out and then placing them over a printed canvas and so um, they were really, yeah, they were um, these kinds of like digitally produced, but then like weirdly hand painted, like really hand painted paintings. Yeah. And um, so I was really just pushing 
the envelope on like it was like kind of a natural progression of where the images were going to in terms of um, the guts of, um, of of what makes an image um, and then I reached a point where that had to conclude and since then I've um, like begun drawing uh, like in a, and, and making these um, you know handmade paintings it was like what we were talking about before we were started talking here about like this kind of uh, projection of like studio production and like mm -hmm. I had gone all the way out there and in that realm and, and done as much as I could do and then I realized that I you know I would be I was much happier like painting you know and then I also it wasn't necessarily all about being happy per se but it was more about um, like doing what was uniquely uh, like possible with uh, with oil paint and I think that had come from being in Europe and, and seeing, um, uh, you know, being exposed to works that uh, really uh, excited me, again, uh, you know, in, in painting. You know, yeah. Uh, what, what did you get out of that, the experience of showing those films that you did? Did it inform what you're doing now, or did you, was it kind of enjoyable to do that stuff, or was it complicated? And um, It was all, it was really serendipitous, the mm -hmm. whole thing. I mean, there was never any, I never thought that I would ever do anything like that. Um, it really had to do with the moment um, and being and open to, it's like saying yes at times when most people would say no. Right, um, right. And, and, it, and it was like a real chain of events where um, you know, I had been asked uh, to um, make, I had, was working on this um, most wanted show for, uh, which was the show of the young actors you know, in front of the um, luxury goods step and repeats uh, mm -hmm. for this white cube show that I was working on and in the middle of it um, a, uh, a, a you know an organization in Dallas asked me to contribute to their um, yearly fundraiser that which to benefit AIDS and research and also the Dallas Art Museum it's called two by two and they said we really need you to help out and so I took a moment away from I was right in the middle of producing the show, and I had, you know, I didn't know what I was going to do. So I, at the time, um, you know, when I was painting all these actors, Lindsay Lohan was being uh, tried for um, felony robbery or something like that, and um, her image was like all over the news um, in the courtroom. And there was one particular image that, to me, looked like an Edvard Munch painting. Back mm -hmm. to Munch, obviously. Um, and and I was like, wow, what a great image that is. And I said that'll be the image that I use for this, um, uh, you know, philanthropic thing because it, it's the absolute antithesis of the work that I'm doing for the London show because those were all like successful actors like you know blowing up in their careers and Lindsay was just like doing the absolute opposite just like unraveling and blowing up in the media and so um, I did the painting I really is I, I titled it like red white and uh, red white and blonde or something like that or red blonde and blue yeah red blonde and blue and um, you know a friend of mine who worked for uh, V Magazine or something like that, Dominic Sidhu, he was in LA at a photo shoot where Lindsay was the subject, and he had the image on his phone as a screensaver during the shoot. Mm -hmm. And she saw it and said, my, like, oh, that's awesome, who did this? Oh, my friend Richard did it, you guys should work together. Here's his number. And so I get this text um, from Lindsay saying, hey, and then I wrote, wrote back like, hey, 
you know, like, and, and, and then it's nice to meet you, Lindsay, blah, blah, blah. And then my friend who met her so texted me back and said, like, you have to be able to answer in three words or less or else you're not going to get a reply. So, and so we started this back and forth. And right at that moment, um, uh, you know, I was the judge at a, uh, on the New York uh, Surf Film Festival. Mm -hmm. So I was, like, um, looking at a lot of surf films at the time and meeting surf uh, film directors and, and one in particular who would become important and at the same time um, my friend um, Ryan uh, who has Deus uh, Records was saying hey Richard you know I was thinking of you um, I'm friends with Sasha Gray you should really um, work with her and I was like really I mean you know I don't know that's not really what I do but he said no no you should just meet her and work with her uh, and in the midst of all this uh, Neville Wakefield asked me to uh, be a part of this um, commercial break um, film program for the Venice Biennale that he was doing with uh, Dasha Zakova, and I was like, wow, um, I, you know, I would love to do that. Well, the problem was is that I had never made a film, not even on my iPhone, right. and not even, and I was uninter uninterested in, in film in any level. But I did know uh, a, a great filmmaker in the name of Taylor Steele, who's like one of our greatest uh, surf filmmakers ever, like on the um, kind of Bud Brown level, you know. Um, and uh, and of, of of his generation, and we had just met at uh, you know, and just I had just sat with him to watch one of his first films being screened um, for the first time in a theater, and we were in dialogue at the time, and then I knew I had an actor, you know, in Lindsay, and and potentially in Sasha, and so I just literally uh, texted uh, you know Taylor and said, hey, do you want to make a film? And he said, sure. And I just said, I have this actor, I think. You know, um, and then I texted Lindsay because we had been talking about making paintings together, you know, like doing a painting of her or whatever. And she's like, I said, hey, do you want to like make a film? And she said, sure. And then I met with Sasha, you know, at, at lunch and said, hey, well, I'm also, you know, more than painting, I'd like to make a, a film. Would you be interested? And so then in the space of about less than two weeks, uh, we like, got his film team together, which had to come from all different parts of the world into L.A., and everything landed into L.A. We rented a location and went at it full, full bore, you know, with, like, we had, like, a 50-person film crew and production. I was, like, we went at it because I really wanted to make these little 90-second films to be the best that they possibly could be. And um, and so I really treated it like painting in the sense, like, where you... Like a portrait. Yeah, like we wanted to create moving portraits, and um, I remember doing the uh, storyboards with Taylor in the in the hotel room, you know, with um, using um, stills from uh, um, uh, like Godard's Contempt and Bergman's Persona, and we kind of combined the two and did a shot list, and then just went for it. And so that's in because those two films were really looking at, you know. Um, Celebrity and in uh, in this kind of really uh, interesting way and and in the persona of the actor you know and and since Lindsay was going through all this these issues with her own life and Sasha was about to retire from the you know adult business mm -hmm. um, it was you know a, a really interesting point in time to do those port those uh, moving portraits they were and, charged and, at that time uh, they were yeah so that's what we did and then uh, and I learned a lot about filmmaking in the process and. Uh, and how expensive it is, but they were self-funded, and um, you know, I and then you know, my gallery ended up helping me um, put them together, and um, I ended up uh, showing them 
and and Venice, but it, they, that whole program didn't really come together as I thought. Um, so we instead, when we found out that like they went the artists, the amount of artists went from like 15 to like 115 you know, yeah. or something like that, um, <clears throat> and that uh, our film was just going to get buried. We took advantage of um, the fact that at that time, and even in the Venice Biennale, I hadn't really gotten a grip on how to use PR and the and the. Um, and on the internet so much mm -hmm. and um, we I worked with uh, two different PR companies uh, worked with, and with people at the New York Times and we timed it to uh, drop Lindsay's film um, online um, like a, two days before the program was supposed to happen for um, at, at the Biennale mm -hmm. and we and we just like independently dropped it online um, and it and it just uh, just um, it blew up, you yeah. know, because uh, it was just very very timely. And to give you an example of that, I I was in a living in a monastery um, in Switzerland, um, working on this show with Adolf Dietrich. You know, it's really wacky, like very unusual show at his you know at his museum, you mm -hmm. know, um, in, in this little town called Ittingen, and um, yet that's where I had to do the release, like coordinate the release from, you know. And uh, when I went into Zurich for a dinner that night, the morning that we released it, by the night I was sitting at a dinner um, with people and someone said, hey, did you see this Lindsay Lohan film um, online that, that came out? And I just said, I made that film, you know. <laughs> and, uh, so it had, and, and that was in Zurich. So yeah. it had already um, got out and I was like, that was another way. I mean, not like the album cover art that I saw. The I mean, it, I also saw, and it really took over the media in terms of the Biennale that year. You know, yeah. it was like go to um, to Venice to see the Lindsay Lohan film, and yet there was nothing to go see. It was all just virtual, you know, and, right. but not in like oh, I'm making virtual reality art. It was just literally taking up the PR space, and so in the end, it was really not. It was more the PR that was the art, you know, yeah. and, the, and, and I felt like that was a place to resolve art, which was NPR, and, and that was seen as a really negative thing at the time, but the coordination of how to release it and how to and time it and make it hit the way that it did was something that, of course, now is a normal part of a gallery right. stuff, but at the time it was not, and yet, you know, with Gagosian and every, we, like, really worked on like making it as clean and as uh, and sharp a, a drop as we as we could, and yeah. uh, you know, it was it was interesting to see what would happen. But then you ended up showing it at that show. Yeah, I mean, two years later, I ended yeah. up um, showing it at that show as the as the whole project filled itself out. You know, with modest size paintings. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my cinema my cinema scaled paintings, but I mean that's what I love to work that yeah. way. Um, I'm not working that way now, and. But it, it's interesting um, to force myself to work small right now because it's there's something that I'm getting out of painting that I would have um, not seen before, you know, if, yeah. I, if I hadn't done that. Yeah, scale shifts are so good. Yeah, for, I mean, yeah. Um, I love making really, really big paintings, but, um, uh, you know, I feel like I almost have to relearn painting at the moment, which is what I'm kind of in the process of doing. Yeah, so you, you're just working <coughs> on, I guess these aren't too small, but for you, I guess they're small. They're tiny for me. Yeah. Well, I mean, those two paintings over there are the smallest paintings I've ever made. Yeah. So, yeah. They hold up? 
Yeah, well, I, I really look at them a lot from a, you know, from a distance in order to see how they um, work yeah. um, in, the, in the same way that big paintings do. Right. You know? So I, try, I really try for that. But you said you were, you know, you're kind of off the grid in here. So, but these are portraits. So are you yeah. working from, from photographs? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, basically, um, they're just images um, from, you know, people's Instagram accounts or like stock, you know, like, um, you know, different sources. And um, I process them on my iPhone and I have a, pr a portable printer like uh, the yeah. Canon yeah, yeah. Uh, 1100 mm -hmm. thing. So that I can, um, if I have a Wi-Fi signal, I can just print them anywhere. And right. it was really because of this last year with the family stuff going on, I needed to be able to make images on the go, yeah. you know, and be able to. Pro so I figured if I couldn't, if I could process them on the iPhone with the different photo apps, um, and just make uh, and simplify the image, and then just make a black and white image, then I have a place to start. And these paintings are all monochrome, using mm -hmm. like this Italian green number. Um, so they're not uh, black and white because there's um, a bit more temperature and, yeah. um, and color range you can get out of this particular color. Although it does look black and white when there's nothing to compare it to. I don't know. Her eyes, sorry, I, people mm -hmm. can't see it. Maybe we could, but her eyes look almost amber, like they have an, a touch of amber to them. Even yeah, though, jasmine, yeah. Mm -hmm. But I don't know if that's it's, just because it, of <coughs> eyes that look like that that have that sort of darker edge to it, you know they're light eyes, you know what I mean? So it's yeah. almost like, is my mind placing that color in there or is there actual temperature shifts going on? Yeah, it it's is hard a temperature shift, yeah. yeah. And that's the fun thing. I mean, uh, working at this scale, um, the 40 by 30 scale, let's just mm -hmm. say, um, it allows for, uh, you know, there's not, like you're not spread out over this huge size, so you can do certain little tricks that actually are, like if you have this pared down, that can really set the painting off, you know. And with her eyes, it's just a transparent version of the color. That if it was, if it had white in it, it would be turn into like a dead gray. But yeah. if you, if the transparent version of that color turns into this kind of golden, golden color, and when you have it opposed to all of this kind of grayish greenish color, it really um, uh, lights up. And you know, so then across the board in the paintings there's like a play between transparent opacities and all that and and again it's just really to kind of ground the technique find um, a way of like building um, a kind of uh, psychological and uh, an emotional content into the painting um, which is kind of antithetical to the image itself so yeah. it's the the painting is having a kind of um, a disagreement with itself on purpose because it's the image is sort of as it's benign on one hand, it's like charged in another way. So it's kind of the opposite of what I originally got involved in painting uh, in the first place. It's like going to that area that I was not comfortable with, you know, and trying yeah. to and try to um, live in that area and also manipulate it too, like ma manipulate uh, the thought, you know, like thoughts in people's minds, but right. but in very strict, you know, terms. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And when you're working, are you working in silence, or do you work to music, or? Um, I work to podcasts. Uh, yeah, all of that. Yeah. Um, all three, you know. Yeah. Um, and you know, music is a bit harder for me now. Although I'm starting to get back into it and starting to enjoy it again. Um, but uh, why? What happened? I don't know. It's just like I kind of got it. Like it was like the rock and roll side of things got too rock and roll, you know. Mm -hmm. And uh, I don't know. It kind of turned me off a bit, but. Um, 
you know, I got back, I found my way back to it. Because um, I have friends that are in it and, and they're, you know, they're, and they're doing just such great stuff. It's, it's kind of like hard not to get back into it and, yeah. and see it. But it's, it's always like impulses uh, right now, like uh, I'm into it, I'm not into it. Um, so, and this, uh, um, potentially, I don't know if it's actually really happening, but I am, um, this band, No Joy, that I really like a lot, um, asked me to do their album cover, so I just finished a painting um, that will be for them nice. for that. So, um, and it's like a, you know, a band that I've been following for a long time. I have a little nostalgia because I feel like mm. album, especially vinyl, mm -hmm. like it used to be so physical, mm -hmm. and now it's so digital that I miss those. I mean, you can still get vinyl, but yeah. you know, you I miss the CD, even the CV, CD booklets of mm -hmm. like opening those up and. I mean, I've succumbed to Spotify and I listen to music online all the time because it's so convenient, but mm -hmm. I kind of miss that. Um, yeah. You know, what album art used to be. Like when I was a kid, I would listen to the record, mm. whether it was like LL Cool J or, yeah, you yeah. know, what Public Enemy, and I'd just mm. stare at that booklet for hours, you know. Yeah, I definitely I did the same thing. Um, it's, you know, for me, it's like the reintroduction of vinyl and people getting into it again and collecting it again and using it. And I, I really think that that's cool. And that's why, you know, when I'm asked to do it, like I have done a couple of things, but not like on the like EMI scale of things, right. you know, it's more like um, indie style. But, um, you know, I, I really enjoy um, doing it. And, you know, uh, with, uh, know hopefully this one will come out and you know it'll be it'll be interesting to see how, how it works out yeah. you know I mean I really I, I think painting uh, in an album covers like but using real paint you know like not just like illustration for paintings right. um, but is is always uh, really interesting like using art as the album cover art is, is always good yeah you know. as one of I mean I never thought I would do animation back mm -hmm. in the day or any film stuff mm -hmm. but when I started doing it and I had the opportunity to do videos with musicians mm -hmm. it's such a fun project yeah to actually have like you know music and the work like tied together it's it's a collaboration I, I a, that you just can't do a lot of admiration for that I, I don't know how I would do it like I can't imagine because it's like in film the way that I made my films it was so you know unrealistic in terms of like cost and how I, I wanted to do it like I really just you know um, it was you know music videos and all that I, I just didn't know how I could do it like it would just be too expensive <laughs> you yeah, know yeah. Like, I would have to be smarter and I'm not you know it's like I, that's why I really admire the work of you know that, that, that people do and how they can do it it's uh, you know it's incredible and I love yeah. music videos you know yeah it's such a great uh, form and and that's the way mus you know, musicians are tied to the visual, mm -hmm. you know, through the album covers and videos. I mean, they, the people still make them, and it still informs their work, too. Which oh, is, yeah. It's such a great sort of symbiotic relationship, I think. I think that the way that songs um, come out now with their official videos, you know, yeah. is great. But I also, I mean, in making my, my little films, to see the fan uh, edits and the fan versions oh, that come yeah. out are yeah. <laughs> really funny. <laughs> you know. It's like you're collaborating, whether you like it or not, you're, oh, <laughs> you're getting remixed. I know. It was, <laughs> it was so crazy when, yeah. that, when all, that all happened. I, yeah, I thought it was so cool. I mean, I, I really like, I mean, I worked with Chelsea Wolfe um, on one of my, um, on my Sasha Gray videos and then um, with Tamarin on the Lindsay uh, video. And it was really cool to, um, to, see like put image to sound and then for the six minute film that I made we, um, I was incredibly lucky 
to work with uh, Toma Bangalter, you know, because uh, um, my um, you know creative director Dominic uh, said, well, Richard, if there could be anyone in this world that you would want to work with for a soundtrack, who would that be? And I said, well, without a doubt, it would be Toma uh, Bangalter because mm -hmm. of what he did with um, Irreversible, you know, Gaspar Noy's uh, Irreversible, which is you know, one of my all-time favorite soundtracks. And within that same day, he um, said, well, um, he's agreed to do your soundtrack. And I was like, oh my God. Yes. And it was, um, it was really such an interesting experience uh, working with him because it, it came down to a single phone call um, that was structured you know, um, that I would be on the phone with him for um, a certain amount of time. Uh, he, you know, he uh, um, was not going to work with me. He didn't want to see the film. He said, send me one image of the film and tell me how long it's going to be and then describe the narrative arc of the film. And then, and, um, and that was it. And then, so I sent him an image. I told him the narrative arc of the film in a sentence, you know, and um, he, uh, you know, a, a short term later, um, when we were finished uh, editing the film, we rece I received uh, an MP3 file and um, put it on the computer and then played the film um, and played the mp3 at the same time. That's exciting, right? And that match, that, that first time of when exactly when I started it to how I watched it, it matched the, um, the arc of the film exactly without any knowledge of how we did the film. But it's, it, it, was, I, it freaked me out. It was, it was so amazing to see that. And, and we really, all we had to do was like, we, we did the sound design and all that, as mm -hmm. you know after that, but um, that, that, the, that the arc and how it sounded and everything, it was a perfect um, match for it. It was, uh, it was so amazing. And, you know, I'm, you know from, to this day, I, I still I can't believe it. Yeah. yeah, it's so nice and you have that, you know, mm -hmm. it's like this thing that will always be there, that, that collaboration that just works out. Like. Yeah, I mean, that, the longer film, the six-minute film was... I, I sat on the footage uh, for a year um, because like, I didn't know what I was going to do. It's also I knew that post-production was going to be brutal, you know, um, a brutal expense, so you have to build up the world chest for that, <laughs> you know, if you're not, you know, yeah. if you're not having, you know, but we ne I needed to make it completely independent, you know, if I had to answer to some other, uh, fa you know, like another group, that wouldn't, you know, like, there's just no way, yeah. you know, and first of all, no one would have worked with me, you know, because of the actor, you know, right. so that would be, like, that's an impossibility. So um, uh, Gianni Yetzer, um, the uh, curator of, um, of Art Unlimited, um, asked me to do a painting installation there, and I said, how about if we do a film um, uh, installation, a video installation, uh, with a world premiere of, um, of, of First Point, uh, mm -hmm. this film that I'm working on, and I hadn't even gotten dealing with the footage yet. And he said, fantastic, that's what we'll do. And, um, and so, but with, um, with uh, Art Unlimited, you know, the curator brings the, each of those projects to a board, which is a, run, which is a group of the galleries um, that, are, uh, that are make up Art Basel, like the kind of um, inner circle galleries, I guess. Um, and they have to approve um, the art that goes into, uh, you know, the board approves the art that goes into the uh, Art Unlimited. 
and um, and there was um, opposition to my proposal, um, which we had you know written out and done all the things that you're supposed to do, and they said because it wasn't art, you know, right. um, you know this is you know a film with Lindsay Lohan, uh, you know this is an art, um, we're not going to put it in Art Unlimited. And, 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 and Gianni was fought for it and um, finally convinced them that it should be in the, there. I just couldn't believe it, because <laughs> here it is, you know, like it's... Um, and we made the film, and it ended up being, um, you know, well attended. I mean, honestly, it never lines out the door to see this little film yeah. uh, there. And um, it ended up, you know, I felt good about it, because it was, you know, any time that... Um, you're in a place where you're not making art is probably when you're making art, you know? Right, uh, right. And, uh, I mean, quite literally. Like, if it's, you know, and I've had that experience a few times, for sure. And, you know, later on uh, with Marfa and all that, and with that, that sculpture that I did down there, um, it's, you know, when, when it gets to the point where people are really upset about it and they're, like, saying that this is just not, you know, that's really when um, you're on that limit when you're doing something that, you know, is... Uh, you know, is is probably going to be more art than you think. <laughs> I guess Mel was right. You know, it's it, it's true uh, that it, it, not only was he right, but it sort of like goes back to the like that area of like Lewis Hamilton. It's like, mm -hmm. you know, you're really you know you're a spacer up to the point where you're not, and then you're in this realm where you're um, where you're creating. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, so definitely. I would say that in the in, in art in general, there are artists that are like the space between, you know, I don't know, creativity and the and the market or whatever. Like it's just it's being filled up all the time, and yeah. you know, and it's replaceable until you get to the point where you're where you're able to operate well beyond the limit. And I think that that's where um, you know art actually really exists you know yeah. I mean when you, when you see and I, I know that that's what I really um, appreciate it for others like uh, when I when I was up at the Met and I saw you know this uh, the self-portrait by Munch uh, uh, you know um, uh, self-portrait in hell you know I mean this is just you know you see like what constitutes the the his, his self-portrait like as facts of mar mark making on mm -hmm. the surface in that world of color, I mean, it, it's it's incredibly assured, you know, and yeah. it's all the way out there, you right. know, and it's unrepeatable, you know, and it's it's amazing, you know. And likewise, you know, go a few blocks over, and um, you see that collaboration between Michelangelo and Piombo and and the portraits and the drawings that they were creating together at that point. Absolutely, you know, it's it's like. When you, it's really interesting just in terms of painting, but it's like the, it's so strong. People are so drawn to it. It's so amazing, you know. And uh, it's so funny to see what contemporary art has got, where it's come, what it's come to, and and what type of experience it offers um, comparatively. You know. Yeah. I'll leave that up to other people to decide. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> so for people who are interested in your work, when can they see? Are you working on something coming up or? Are there opportunities for them to check out your work, either in the flesh or online? Or um, online, basic searches really um, yeah. uh, have a lot of uh, stuff comes up. Um, you know, there's like uh, through, you know, the Gaussian Gallery, you can see stuff there. But also just um, 
you know, from shows in the past. I don't, my website has, is in development <laughs> once again, um, so hopefully that'll be coming online soon. Um, and I'm right now, after, um, you know, working in the studio towards uh, creating uh, this new body of work for an exhibition, and it, there's potential for it to be shown potentially in Europe next summer, but I'm not 100% sure we're going to decide that um, in the new year, like where, where it'll land. Um, but I, I will definitely uh, keep, keep you posted about that. Um, but, um, you know, it's out there, uh, and the, the work is out there. And can, I mean, it's, it has, the films are, are on, on, online, yeah. uh, searched under my name, um, and, um, so, and, and they were made for the internet. They were not, right. you know, they're not like, Video, exclusive yeah, to the video, gallery. Yeah, video art. I, they don't live on the gallery's website. Um, and then, um, yeah, and that's just, there's more painting to be done. And, and you know, the, I recently did the, like, three covers of Interview Magazine, like, mm -hmm. coming full circle with um, <clears throat> with uh, Richard Bernstein, you know. When you literally asked, started from the bottom. <laughs> I literally started from the bottom. And I went, you know. Uh, to the top uh, yeah. with that, and uh, that was it. Was such an honor to um, to be able to to create those um, covers yeah. uh, for them, uh, and and uh, so that that's most recent. And um, you know, this album cover for No Joy hopefully will come out, and um, you know, uh, then the, these monochrome. Uh, hopefully, we'll do a uh, monochrome painting show soon um, before I launch into a full spectrum of. Uh, you know, psychedelic color. Nice. <laughs> well, I've been a fan for a long time, so um, oh, likewise. it's been a real pleasure to come over. Thanks well, for thanks. having yeah. me by. Yeah, thanks for coming by. Sound and Vision was conceived, produced, recorded, edited, mastered, and facilitated by myself, Brian Alfred. You can find images that I take from the podcast sessions by going to the images page on the website soundandvisionpodcast.com. You can find even more images on the podcast Instagram feed at soundandvisionpodcast. If you love hearing these artists speak about their life and work, please support the podcast by rating and reviewing it on iTunes. It's also available on Stitcher and Google Play. You can even donate to help support the podcast by clicking the donate button on the webpage. The introduction and accompanying music was generously provided by Michael Lovett. Michael records as Nazca Lines and also Moonlights in the band Metronomy. The bio and outro music were provided by Sean Seymour. Sean and his wife Yoshimi are a band called Lullatone based in Nagoya, Japan. Thanks to them and also Jacob Tutu and Logan Takahashi who have also lent music to the podcast. Thanks to all the listeners who share and support the podcast. All this is done by myself without funding and ads, and it really is you all who help spread the word, and you spread it well. Many thanks to all of you and all the artists for sharing their stories and time with me.